This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, delivered at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. in 1963, is one of the most iconic speeches in American history. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. A speech that had a monumental impact on the lives and futures of millions of people. A speech that came at a tipping point in the civil rights movement, which was divided at the time. Some people wanted to meet force with force. Others wanted to stay with a sort of more quiet, pacifistic kind of treatment of civil rights issues. That's author Maggie Jackson. And while many people have written about this pivotal speech and its impact, the thing that fascinates her about it is that it came from a place of uncertainty. He didn't quite know what he was going to say. And he asked for extra help from advisors on draft after draft. He stayed up very, very late, redrafting and rechanging the speech. But really, he improvised. Maggie has a new book out. It's called Uncertain, the Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. And what was so interesting to me is that that wasn't just a one-off for King. He really was a leader who used humility, who was open about saying he did not know the course. And then in the actual speech, he basically said, go back home knowing somehow this situation can and will be changed. He used very vague terminology. He left the way forward open. And he used what William James called the courage of a maybe. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. He didn't give pat answers. He didn't tick off what had already been achieved or make demands, although he did speak with conviction and and lay out the path forward. But it was a speech that was basically riddled with and produced by uncertainty. And that's where the power lay. What do you think worked for him in this moment with his humility, with him saying, I'm not sure what is going to happen here? I think that he was able to answer the needs of the moment rather than trot out predisposed assumptions that he perhaps had made earlier in the civil rights movement. I think his uncertainty on the day allowed him to be at the sort of in sync with what the crowd and the needs of the moment. It was a very, very tense time. I mean, Washington and the Kennedy White House were bracing for violence, and yet King was able to give people a message which was both calming and also exhilarating. It was inspirational and yet not inciting of violence or anything like that. So I think he was able to read the moment, which is precisely what uncertainty gives to us. The thought of giving a speech to hundreds of thousands of people and not having every single word nailed down makes me break out in a cold sweat. It's really hard to trust that you'll know what to do or what to say in a situation. And usually we try to avoid uncertainty. 
Many of us fear the unknown. Instead, we gather as much info as we can. We play out scenarios in our heads, make plan A and plan B. Because being prepared for what comes next offers comfort and confidence. But in her book, Maggie makes a case for embracing uncertainty. She says that hidden in these unnerving moments are opportunities for growth and innovation. On this episode, a look at uncertainty, what's really happening when we're forced to face the unknown, and how we can get comfortable with this feeling. So in her book, Maggie says the feeling of uncertainty comes up when we realize our own limitations. It's not full ignorance. It's basically knowing that your knowledge has fallen short. And so this occurs when we meet something new or unexpected. And any organism, humans and animals like that meet up with something new, have a response, very visceral, very neural response to this newness. Maggie says uncertainty is a normal part of the human experience, but we don't tend to see it that way. In our culture, we're extremely biased against uncertainty. I mean, people, CEOs who pause just briefly when they're considering a very new complex problem are rated in experiments as incompetent and less influential than those who make an instant knee-jerk response to what is a problem that they don't know. But uncertainty is, and this is what I discovered in the research, you know, maligned. Uh, it's nearly not correctly understood, and it's maligned in our society. And I think we have pushed this kind of urgency for answers to a corrosive degree. Uncertainty can induce stress and anxiety, but Maggie says if we lean into it, the experience can also have benefits. That unsettling nature is actually uncertainty's gift to us because amidst the stress and the neural changes that are occurring when you meet up with something new, basically working memory is improved. Your focus broadens because you're on your toes, you're looking out, and then your neurons themselves, the brain cells, become more receptive to new data. There are many other changes. The brain becomes more likely to share information across different regions of the brain. And so you're on your toes. And of course, you're waking up. You're jolted literally out of uncertainty. And that is an opportunity. And if you cut short that opportunity by missing uh, the chance to be uncertain, you're actually losing the opportunity to then move forward with uncertainty and to learn. It seems like we read the kind of stress situation of not knowing often as something like, ooh, I want to get out of this stress situation. I don't like this. I don't like the uncertainty. Instead of seeing it as an invitation, that here's a moment where I can learn something. Exactly. And one another sort of window into this idea that exploring the unknown is discomforting, it involves uncertainty, comes from curiosity research, which is something I, uh, absolutely fascinating. In, in researching um, the curious personality, the curious disposition, people found out that one of the most important pillars or facets of curious people is their ability to lean into uncertainty being willing to explore or along with wanting that answer or being great at asking questions, the curious person is going to be highly likely to embrace or manage that kind of not knowing. And another fascinating thing is that this component of curiosity, the tolerance for the unknown, is most highly linked to well-being. Now, why is that? We're talking about discomfort and we're talking about un, you know, uncomfortable things and things that kind of throw us off what we know already. But to me, I think that's related to well-being because life is full of disquieting things and comfortable things. And unless you're open to all of life, you're really not actually thriving and flourishing. This discomfort is actually something that propels us toward expanding our cognitive horizons. Ideally, I guess, it propels us toward that. 
<laughs> I mean, it seems like sometimes we don't follow the invitation, right? Sometimes in times of uncertainty, we're just like, oh, well, got to pick a side and we do it quickly. Or we come up with an explanation that seems like the best way to go based on how we have explained things in the past. Yes. Maybe a better way to put it would be to say what I'm talking about at this threshold moment of uncertainty is that it sets us up to explore the unknown. And you're right. I mean, in the pandemic, what did people buy? Puppies, dogs, guns. People were really interested in retreating into elements that seem certain. And in fact, some studies that are just coming out show that people who are, quote unquote, intolerant of uncertainty, that those are people who see uncertainty as a threat, as you know, pretty much a defeat. There's a lot of talk of injustice when people talk about intolerance of uncertainty. You know, life is unfair if it's uncertain. Those are the people who struggled more mentally during the pandemic. They also gravitated toward more coping strategies related to denial and disengagement and substance abuse. But Maggie says uncertainty can help boost our creativity and our cognitive abilities. For example, it could change whether we tackle a problem based on what we already know, how we always do things, or try something new. And that's why experts like surgeons or your accountant or someone with some experience can offer an answer quickly because they are operating from what they already know, basically. The trouble with that is that leads to cognitive entrenchment or what people call carryover mode. So these kinds of experts who are intuition-based, who are relying on the quick mind most of the time in certain, in many environments, are actually not you know, able, they're less comfortable to think on their feet and, and confront that opportunity that uncertainty offers. Whereas adaptive experts are those who basically take that opportunity and use the space of uncertainty to deliberate. So uncertainty is both a opportunity, but it's also, I think of it as phase two, is a space. That's why this sorts of behavior is highly related to pausing. You know, you can even see a rabbit crossing the field, hears something new, as in perhaps a hawk, and pauses. This is something, again, that we have in common with many organisms. And this time, uncertainty is a time, it's a moment of suspense, but that's where we've removed ourselves, we've disconnected from, you know, instant action, and now we have the chance to investigate. You describe in the book an experiment on pauses and the fact that a pause does not mean nothing is happening in the brain or elsewhere. So talk a bit about that research on what actually happens during a pause. Sure. Well, this wonderful study that was done out of Stanford and all the neuroscientists did was have participants listen to very short symphonies. Uh, music that had that was not long and elaborate, but there were, uh, of course, pauses between movements. And what they found, to their surprise, was that when the brain was not listening, when we were not listening to the music itself, the brain was more active than when the music was playing. And so basically, the music sort of led them to a cognitive cliff edge. You know, the expectation or the idea, the uncertainty of what they would find in the next movement, uh, you know, led their brain to be, you know, highly active. Uh, it was picking up on what it needed to know, as well as digesting, I'm sure, what came before. But the brain was not doing nothing when in that moment of silence, something, you know, a, a time when we would consider, um, you know, zero or wasted or etc. And I think that's that that study tells us so much about our lives today. You know, I interviewed one scientist who was trying to write recommendation letters in the 10-second pauses while he was, you know, dealing with some kind of biological machine. And these sorts of this inability to have any wasted time between project or email or something is that's something that really drives home. It rings a bell to me. And, and that's something that's really changed in my life as a result of doing this research into uncertainty. Does our attitude toward uncertainty change over time? You know, just talking to you, I'm thinking kids 
on some level must have a higher tolerance for uncertainty because, you know, there are so many things they don't know. So they must be able to embrace that better. Yes. And I think that it's true. They are, you know, sort of a poster children, so to speak, for the benefits of not knowing. They're not weighted down by their experience, by their that honed knowledge. And there's a wonderful uh, study that shows something called functional fixedness. You know, uh, adults and even seven-year-olds, you know, see an object for what it was made to do. Um, so, you know, the experimenters took a stuffed bear up on a shelf, and then there were an assortment of tools to try to get up to that bear, uh, including a box. And of course, the box could be a steps tool. But seven-year-olds and older children just saw the box containing the tools as the container for the tools. That's what it was made to do. Whereas five-year-olds outperformed older children because they are asking themselves, what can it do, not what is it made to do? So they basically don't have to get out of the way of their sureness. They're already basically living lives of unsureness, which is another way of saying, as we've been mentioning, they're curious, they're open-minded, and we can see that. That's what beginner's mind in Zen studies is all about. That idea that your knowledge is, again, not set in stone, but it's movable and flexible. Maggie says there is more research now on uncertainty, and there are some takeaways we can try at home to make us more comfortable with this feeling. One of the examples that scientists are using is to just answer a phone call without caller ID, which is something a young relative of mine called terrifying. That alone is actually difficult for people. And so this, these can be you know, little steps and delegating at work. So that sounds simple, right? Try it, you practice it, you get used to it. It's not a disaster. But really one of the most important aspects of this is that you know, people actually predict what will happen before they try these situations filled with unknowns. And then they are using their own uncertainty. They're jolting themselves away from their assumptions, you know, using the best aspects of uncertainty to, you know, rethink what this whole idea of uncertainty is disaster or failures. Can we get more comfortable with just not getting an answer sometimes? You know, you mentioned your young relative who doesn't like to answer phone calls or thought that was terrifying as an idea when they don't know who's calling. And you know, right now, a lot of people find themselves in situations where they are dating online and then that person just disappears. There's no answer. There will probably never be an answer as to what went wrong, how it went wrong. But that's really hard to accept. Well, I think that by accepting or leaning into uncertainty, we actually make an enormous admission that life isn't perfect it's unpredictable, and it's dynamic. And that's something we need to hold a little closer to the front burner of our minds as we go forward. And, you know, uh, well, I'll tell you one story of how uncertainty helped me during the pandemic when people were very on edge and there was a lot of stress and threat. And a close friend's daughter was getting married, you know, really in the early pandemic. So it was going to be a small wedding. And she told me they couldn't invite friends. But then I found out she did just not me. <laughs> and I was upset and mm -hmm. there was some tension. And then when I tried to clear the air or talk about it, she kind of erased me from the friendship to basically for almost a year. And I had a lot of time to think about this and I was steeped in uncertainty. And I thought to myself, did I really know what happened? Because I, my first response was, that's it, you know, break up, et cetera. You know, I knew, I knew, I said to myself, but I didn't know. I didn't know all that was going on. And I, that measure of uncertainty, what Rebecca Solnit calls the spaciousness of uncertainty, is really what helped me cope. And that helped me be more resilient and me be more open when she kind of returned to the friendship. And then what did she say happened? <laughs> <laughs> she said she just, she couldn't actually have an uncomfortable conversation. Um, that's all she could manage at that time. She, you know, basically had lied about the situation to, you know, prevent stress for her 
but it backfired. And anyhow, we're talking now and that's, and that's nice. And we might have very different ways to deal with uh, uncertain situations, but I felt as though, you know, there was a little bit of learning there um, on both sides. But the really important point, I think, is that during that time when I was very hurt and shocked, uncertainty really helped me, really, really helped me. Maggie Jackson is an author and journalist. Her new book is Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Coming up, how to make a big decision when you're just not sure how the outcome will affect you. You know, why am I not experiencing the same thing that they describe? Am I broken in some way? That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about uncertainty and how we can embrace this feeling to learn more about ourselves. Sometimes you have to choose a path, make a decision, yes or no, that will change the rest of your life. And you have to make the call even though you're not sure about the outcome. Pulse reporter Liz Tung has found herself at one such crossroads lately, grappling with the decision whether or not she and her husband should try to have children or whether they should continue on their current path as a childless couple. Would having a kid make them more happy, less happy? Would not having a child mean big regrets later in life? And could she become more comfortable with feeling uncertain about the answer she chooses? Here's Liz. I'm in the car with a few friends, and we're on our way back from a baby shower. One of them is FaceTiming with her two-year-old daughter. You guys having fun? I saw that you went to... At the house. At the house, yeah. The daughter does some more adorable babbling, and then it's time to sign off. All right, baby. I love you. This is the side of parenting I usually see. All the cute things. Cute pictures, cute stories, cute videos. And when I see it all, I can almost imagine my husband Wooly and I doing it ourselves. The excitement of feeling that first kick. The bliss of holding a newborn. The pure joy of a little person you created running into your arms like you're their whole world. Or as one of my friends told me, it's like how you feel about your cat times a million. For most of my life, I didn't think much about having kids. After college, I was always focused on the next thing. Getting married, grad school, buying a house. And then suddenly, the checklist was full and I had this thought. Wait, what did I do this all for? It seemed like the obvious answer was what all of my friends had started doing. Having kids. It's something my husband Wooly and I started talking about a couple years ago when I hit my mid-30s. But pretty quickly in these discussions would always hit a wall. 
that wall being potential problems. Well, I think really the the biggest hindrance is the amount of money that it takes. I think we'd just be constantly scrambling and panic and feeling like we were letting the child down by not doing well enough because circumstances just don't allow for it. I worry more about whether or not we could actually handle it. Willie's on the spectrum and hates loud noises. He also doesn't do very well without enough sleep. I, on the other hand, struggle with executive functioning, being on time, remembering appointments, not losing my keys. So all of that's in the no column. In the yes column, our future happiness, feeling like we have meaning in our lives, and the distinct fear that I'm missing out on something, something life-changing, something that would bring us a depth of joy and love that we would never otherwise understand. So it's big philosophical questions on the one side and more practical logistics type issues on the other. It feels like this complicated equation that I can't quite solve. So finally, I decided to stop churning my brain and to ask my friends, what is having kids really like? And has it made them happy? My first discovery was that almost no one I know has spent as much time agonizing over this as I have. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't totally think it through. This is a friend who I'll call Maya. I wanted her and another friend we'll hear from in a sec to be completely honest, hence the pseudonyms. I thought it would be rewarding and like, it would be hard, but that you would get it. It would just make sense. And like, babies can't be that hard, but it was not that at all. It (laughs) is not that. My other friend, who I'll call Aaron, chimed in. It is relentless, like nonstop. And your mind gets pulled into so many different directions. So does your body. I've heard that it gets a lot better after the first year. But for Maya, who's now a couple years in, it's still really hard, especially balancing her kid with her job. I think right now it's like juggling both. I I always feel like I'm not doing anything 100 percent well, Mm -hmm. like being a good worker and also being a parent. Finally, I asked Maya and Aaron the big question. Are you happier? Erin said it's been hard not being able to do the things she used to love, like going to concerts, trying new restaurants, traveling. But I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Like, I think, like, there's meaning now and there's a purpose. Whereas, like, before we would go to bed and be like, man, we really wasted our day. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, these days I never feel that way. Like, I feel like. I really did everything I could in this day. I asked Maya what she thought. If in the final balance, having kids has brought her more meaning and happiness. It's definitely all consuming and I don't like that. Like, (laughs) I regret every day having a kid. Like, there are happy moments some days, but like, I mostly regret it. (laughs) What what makes you, is it like how it changed your ability to like live independently and to like have time for yourself? It's like all the things we were just talking about. Yeah, being able to be independent, but also just the like damage it did to our relationship. And like that was like my top pride and joy. It was like, we have this beautiful relationship and this is going to make me emotional. But like that was everything. And now we put ourselves, our, our relationship and ourselves on the back burner to our, our detriment. And so now we're trying to work really hard to get back to a good place. And it feels like an uphill battle. And that's scary and makes me sad, you know, that I feel like we've lost something. After talking with Maya and Erin, I felt like I was being pulled in two different directions. Both said having kids is the hardest thing they've ever done. But for Erin, it was worth it. For Maya, at least right now, it isn't. So I reached out to other parents, friends, acquaintances, my own parents, about why they decided to have kids and how it's affected their happiness. There were a few common threads. Most said having kids changed them as people, giving them more patience, empathy, and gratitude. But there was still no clear answer about happiness. So I decided to find out what science has to say. I started with Jennifer Glass. She's a sociology researcher and professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and a mother to grown children herself. Jennifer has published several influential studies on the happiness of parents, 
So I decided to get right to the point. Based on your research, if I want to be happy, should I have children? It depends, but probably not. If you're expecting it to increase your happiness. When Jennifer says happiness, she isn't talking about long-term fulfillment. More like your day-to-day well-being, how good you feel in a given moment. I wouldn't say it would necessarily decrease your happiness. I think what the data show pretty conclusively is that there's no increase in happiness from having children, and there can be decreases in parental happiness. A lot of people have these beliefs that, you know, Having children will make you happier or make you feel, feel more fulfilled. That if you don't have children, you might be lonely in old age or you might lack people that will care for you. But if you look at all of the studies, you can't find any that show that parenthood, in fact, increases your adult happiness, even in old age. Of course, Jennifer says this doesn't mean parents are never happy. It can be very meaningful. It can enhance your sense of why you're here on earth and what your purpose is in life. So we're not really talking about those psychological states. We're really talking about the kind of hedonic states of, do you feel good today? And if you look at the daily experiences of parents, you can see that there's a lot of time where they don't feel good. This all sounded pretty bleak. But the flip side is the first part of what Jennifer said, that having kids can bring meaning to your life, which raised what was becoming a central question for me. How do you compare happiness and meaning? Because, I said to Jennifer, on some level, doesn't meaning lead to happiness? I think mental health experts will tell you it's a totally different category. That things that can be deeply meaningful can also be very hazardous to your health and well-being. For instance, working with refugees in a war-torn country. Probably not the happiest work, but intensely meaningful. So I think that people derive meaning oftentimes from deciding to engage in forms of self-sacrifice. And I think those are the things that kind of keep people going in times of despair or times of hopelessness, uh, to have that sense of purpose. And so I think you have to really dissociate those two because one of the things that makes parenthood meaningful is that you feel like you're putting a little bit of your stamp on immortality. To wrap things up, I asked Jennifer about how having kids has changed her life. And she gave me an answer that pretty much blew all the science away. I know all the statistics. I know all the hardships. But I'm going to be like every other parent. I'm going to tell you, it was the best decision of my life. I cannot imagine my life without my children. Uh, It would have been a giant hole because I know the, the sheer joy. Those highs, those highs are very, very high. I love my partner a lot. But when I walk in the door, he doesn't come rushing towards me with his arms open going, Mommy, Mommy, you're the most important thing in the universe to me. Jennifer's last answer really threw me for a loop. The whole time we were talking, I was feeling more and more like, yes, we are making the right decision. Not only can our lives be happy without kids, they can actually be happier. But the way Jennifer's face lit up talking about her kids the way she described motherhood as being almost like this transcendent experience, it all thrust me back into doubt. It's not that I think that our lives would be a big black hole without kids. But if not kids, then what? More of the same for the next 40 years? Comfortable but boring? I realized I needed to talk with someone who could show me what a future without kids might look like. So I got in touch with Amy Blackstone, She's a professor of sociology at the University of Maine. And for the past 20 years, she's been studying child-free adults, people who decide not to have kids. So tell me about how you got interested in the topic of child-free adults. It was actually both a personal and a professional journey. Amy's 51 now and decidedly child-free. But in her mid-30s, she was still unsure which way to go especially after three of her previously staunchly child-free friends announced they were pregnant. They said it was like a switch had flipped, and they suddenly started to feel this pull towards motherhood. And I was happy for all of my friends, but at the time, I thought, wow, you know, why am I not experiencing the same thing that they described? Am I broken in some way? So Amy decided to dive headfirst into research on this understudied group of people. According to Amy's research, parents and non-parents list really similar reasons for their decisions to have or not have kids. For instance, concern for their relationships, for their community, and for the future of the world. 
So we actually have more in common with parents <laughs> than we might think. As for how those decisions play out, Amy told me that people who don't have kids, on the whole, tend not to regret their decision. I told Amy about all the research on happiness and having kids, and how I talked to all these parents who were telling me how having kids is so hard but rewarding, how they might be less happy on a day-to-day -day level but have a greater sense of meaning, and how this question of meaning had started to become my biggest worry. So I'm wondering, is that something that you thought about? And is that something that you hear other child-free people talking about is like struggling to find a sense of meaning um, without having kids? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this because this is something I thought a lot about. And oh, let me just cut to the very end and say, I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. The world is our oyster and there are many ways to find meaning. For instance, some people find meaning in their work or in being creative, or in nurturing their friendships. Amy finds it in her teaching, her husband, the volunteer work she does, mentoring high school kids. She meditates, she writes. Like there are so many other ways to challenge yourself to become more selfless, or to experience new things, or to gain greater happiness. Hmm, I love that. I have to say, when you said that, like, I shouldn't worry about that and the world is your oyster. It got me like a little choked up because I guess I didn't realize like how much that has been weighing on my mind is that like sort of the picture that I've formed talking to people and researchers is like, well, if I don't have kids, I'll have a pleasant life. I'll have a perfectly pleasant, happy life, but not necessarily like a meaningful life if I don't have kids. I'd hoped that by the end of this story, I would have gathered enough evidence to reach a crystal clear answer. But of course, making big life decisions isn't like that. So instead, I reported back to my husband, Wooly, about what I'd found. Basically, the conclusion I've come to is like, it's a wash. So like, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, it doesn't really affect your overall happiness. So for me, it's it comes back to this question of what would we be missing out on? Well, every choice you make means that you're choosing not to have something else. So like, you know, at the minute, like our lives uh, are great and it would be very, very difficult to fit a kid in. But also, like, we don't know the future. Like, it could be that because we didn't have a kid in a couple of decades, like, our life is just hell and we really missed out and everything. But I, I kind of doubt that at the same time. Like, I don't, I don't have that feeling. To be honest, I don't have that feeling either. Because Willie's right. Our lives are happy now. When I think about the happiest part of my day, it's after dinner, sitting on the couch with Willie and our two cats just doing the crossword. It's not productive or transcendent or lasting, but maybe happiness doesn't have to be any of those things. If I learned anything from all my conversations, it's that there's no one way to be happy and that happiness isn't guaranteed no matter what you do. So maybe the key is to stop thinking of happiness as a destination we can reach and something more like a compass, a tool among other tools to help us plot our course which I think for now is holding steady, at least until the needle moves one way or the other. That story was reported by Liz Tong. Coming up, one man's experiment to give up certainty for adventure and fun. On a yes, I moved to Bozeman, Montana in the middle of the winter in my van and I started ice climbing for the entire winter. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? 
Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. And those at Delta are travelers just like you. That's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about uncertainty and how we can embrace the feeling to learn things about ourselves. Are you always staying in your lane, doing things you know that feel safe or comfortable, leading your life in well-prepared but also well-worn tracks? One man wanted to break out of that pattern and embrace uncertainty, and he used one word to do it. Nicole Curry has his story. To illustrate the philosophy that guided his life for several years, Alex Shamil tells me a story. It's one of his favorites. It starts with him going to a heavy metal concert, even though he's not a fan of loud and distorted music. He won free tickets from a radio call-in show and made a friend go with him. The band is called Atreyu. We're kind of in the back of the crowd, like having fun with it, and there was a person standing next to us and they're like, hey, do you want to go crowd surf? Alex's eyes go completely wide. Crowd surfing sounds crazy, dangerous, but without hesitation, he says yes. The next thing I knew, I was crowd surfing above this crowd and I was the first person there that had crowd surfed all night. You don't have control over your body. You're doing up and down and fast and slow and People are trying to push you to the next person and and you keep getting pushed along and and all of a sudden, I get pushed and dropped onto the stage. Alex stood up and peered past the blinding lights to see hundreds of fans. They were jumping up and down, screaming and egging him on. He had long hair at the time, so he did the first thing that came to mind. I head banged with the, the band. I had, you know, the guitarist on my left and I had the bassist on my right. Alex did this for a couple of minutes until he realized that maybe, just maybe, he should leave the stage to the professionals. I quickly walked to the edge of the stage where there's the stairs to get down. There's this big security guard, and he looks up to me and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, back the way you came. (laughs) And so, like, sir, do you know where I just came from? Like, I was on the stage. But I'm not going to argue with this man. Like, so I went back on the stage and... I'm like, you guys, catch me. And there went Alex, diving off the stage in belly flop style. And the crowd catches me in their hands. And it's just one of those surreal moments where I'm like, how did I get here? Alex grew up as a timid kid, introverted, unsure how to insert himself into conversations, and often afraid to try something new. How did he get from being a shy kid to diving off the stage at a heavy metal show? The answer can be found in how he introduced himself to me. My name is Alex, and Yes Man is my nickname. Yes Man. It all started when Alex was a student at Green River College in Auburn, Washington. His spring semester was coming to a close, and he was thinking about his summer break plans. I didn't have an internship, I didn't have anything lined up, and I didn't want to be just working at a KFC. He says, no offense to KFC. But I didn't want to be working fast food uh, where I was living at. I wanted to do something special with my time. Alex's friend made a pretty random suggestion. To work on a farm in Hawaii, a work and live program. Alex was 21 at the time and had never traveled before. 
he thought. Why not? So he said, yes. On his first day in Hawaii, he had to pick a place to stay on the farm. He walked around with other farm workers as they called dibs on where to unpack their belongings. And one of them happened to be a, a treehouse. And this treehouse was 30 feet up in the air and this big Hawaiian tree with these big old branches coming out and big flowers on the branches. And, and there were some other people working on the farm, but nobody had taken this treehouse. And so as I'm walking around the farm trying to pick where to, where to stay, it was like, well, I mean, this thing is open. Am I just going to walk past it because there's, you know, I'm kind of nervous about it? Why did everyone else say no? But that was when I said yes. Another yes. Alex climbed up to this ancient-looking treehouse and started to experience what most children dream of. 360 degrees of windows on the whole thing, and I could hear the cokey frogs every night just cooing me to sleep. It was just a very special, free feeling to be in that treehouse. Alex was experiencing a dose of freedom he hadn't really felt since he was a kid. It's so out of this world. And so as an adult, to be able to do that, it makes you feel like a, a child again. And, and that there's some freedom in that. Alex sat in this treehouse and realized how he got there. He didn't contemplate or overthink. He just opened his mouth and said, yes. It's pretty clear how our decision-making can be a taxing event. You are wrestling with doubt. You are wrestling with fear. These are types of things that we all face. So what if you didn't have to face these doubts in your mind? Saying yes doesn't mean it's not going to be terrifying, maybe, to do the thing. But half of the battle is not the doing, but the thinking about doing. When we're faced with making decisions, big or small, our brain draws on previous experiences and information to decide whether to say yay or nay. It goes through a checklist, weighing pros and cons, and sometimes we loop endlessly through the potential benefits and rewards, or drawbacks and risk. And now Alex was going to skip that. He decided that he would say yes to everything, questions from people, request from bulletin board flyers, or just anyone asking for help. He did this for over a year, and like the heavy metal concert he went to, it pushed him out of his comfort zone and into new spaces. He signed up for a hiking trip that covered 10,000 miles. He bought and fixed up an old van. Alex also learned new skills. On a yes, I moved to Bozeman, Montana in the middle of the winter in my van, I got a job snowplow driving for the city, and I started ice climbing for the entire winter. And since then, I now call myself an ice climber. Alex even spoke at his college graduation, just because they needed speakers to fill the time. Odd, right? Before I start my remarks, I'm going to ask us all to do something. Keep in mind, Alex was not valedictorian or the school body president, and he usually hates speaking in front of large crowds, but there he was, trying to get the audience to do the wave. Okay, can we do that? On the count of three, when I point towards your section, I want everybody to lift both their arms high into the air, just like we do at basketball games. Alex racked up hundreds of experiences, big and small. It was all exciting, but this freedom paved an unpredictable path. Saying yes to everything didn't always work out for him. Like the time he saw a post asking people to support an online auction. Art for a good cause. I was like, wow, that is so cool. Like, I really want to support what they're doing. So I, I messaged the guy, the moderator who was setting it up, and I said, hey, I will bid $5 more than the current bid on all of the pieces of art. He received an email a month later. The first line read, Hey, you're the unfortunate winner of four fine art prints. A measly $5 increase on each bid ended up costing him thousands. And 
it was a little, uh, it was challenging to get through those times of finances. But I realized after that, that that was like a clear example of, you can't say yes to everything. Alex stopped the Yes Men Act. He settled into a home in Portland, Oregon, and got a job as an engineer. That's where he is today. He's 29 now. But he tells me in hindsight, those experiences of saying yes all the time were crucial for him to step outside of the box and set aside the fear that was ultimately holding him back. Saying yes in the beginning does give you this rich, weaving tapestry of experience of life, a very chromatic life with all these colors and vibrances and all of these, these beautiful parts to it. And once you can see that, oh my gosh, there's so much out there, then, then you figure out what is the most beautiful thing that you want to dig into? What is the most beautiful color? And that is where you focus your attention and, and you use yes again, not to make the tapestry wide, but to dive into one specific part of it. And to me, Nicole, to me, the saddest thing in life is a, is a person that doesn't realize that the world is beautiful. Alex thinks back to when he first went to Hawaii and how much he's changed. Saying yes has made me more spontaneous. Saying yes has made me more confident. Saying yes has also made Alex a rock climber, a hiker, a person who listens to heavy metal music just a little bit, and a person who rarely overthinks decisions. Because I know that when life provides opportunities down the line, I already have the answer to these things. I don't have to use my bandwidth to think about them. And that lets me, instead of being anxiously focused on the future, I can be more present and more in tune with right where I'm at. Not too shabby for a kid who was shy, timid, and letting the world pass him by. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from Washington Wise. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how it may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast.